Hey everyone, this is Dominique. And I'm Isha. Welcome to the Founders Roundtable. Our very first guest is a true powerhouse. But before we dive into the episode, we wanted to introduce ourselves in the podcast. I'm Dominique Golden, the founder of Social Impact Consulting, a social enterprise that educates corporate employees on the plight of social issues. And through our nonprofit arm, Collective Impact, we curate events that allow them to impact the communities who need it most. I'm Isha Nayak, the founder of Trio, a digital health company building a future with zero Band-Aid health solutions for chronic conditions. Our tech-backed platform is focused on root cause medicine and acts as your partner in healing during every step of your wellness journey. Our experiences as early stage founders led us to create the Founders Roundtable. This is a series of candid conversations with founders, investors, and innovators about the impact, conscious innovation, and more. I mean, let's face it. Oftentimes, a founder's journey to create impact is romanticized, you know, like the social media highlight reel. It's unrealistic. So we're here to share the not-so-pretty realities of starting and growing a venture, as well as all of the pieces of an ecosystem that empower and fuel companies to scale. We aim to create a safe space for innovators to explore ideas share obstacles, and offer encouragement. Our goal is really to go beyond just having discussions and actually provide founders, like ourselves, with a community and tangible resources that can take them to the next level. Monica Wee, who is joining us for her very first episode, shares this mission. She is an exceptional leader and innovator whose experience includes founding multiple programs supporting aspiring innovators everywhere via Digerati Girls, Parallel Ventures, Founders Boost Detroit, and Venture Catalysts. As an advisor at Grand Circus, a consultant with Fortune 10 Corporations, partner at Backstage Capital, and managing director of Techstars Equitech, She is truly empowering founders to make waves of impact across industries. Her work has been featured in Cranes, The Huffington Post, Black Enterprise, and Forbes. This intro doesn't do her work justice. And my question is, what doesn't she do? Let's dive into episode one. Monica, we'd love to hear your quick elevator pitch. Who is Monica and what is she (laughs) passionate about? I, uh, that's a good question, passionate. The, the question, what don't I do? I don't sleep that much. <laughs> I have a lot of fun um, doing things um, similar to what Dominic mentioned that have impact, um, that uh, for me, it's usually impact to the ecosystem and that cities, you know, especially emerging cities and emerging markets. Um, to me, I think that's the easiest way to change people's lives and I, and I happen to have a skill at doing it. Um, and I actually, I don't, I literally don't sleep that much. And so with that time, I, I spend a lot of time like coming up with, I'm coming up with new business ideas, new collaboration ideas pretty much every week. Um, and I'm always putting something out there, but I, I love it. I love the work. And um, as I was, as we mentioned in a prior conversation, the work that I do helps me sleep really well at night. And so I go to bed that way and I wake up that way. And it's just been a really good part of my life to, you know, have these experiences. 
I love that. And really being able to sleep good at night, I think, is is seeking peace, I think, is huge, you know, whatever you do. So I love that you spoke on that. And we're also curious about, you know, your your story. And many times, you know, who we become as adults, we have like glimpses of that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so you see where I'm going with this. So we are curious about how how did you get in this space of of impacting? And clearly, you were different as a child. So we're just curious. Yeah, <laughs> what did that look I like? Was, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm I'm an intelligent person, and as an intelligent person, they um they always put me in different classes and different spaces. And I've, I've always loved that. Uh, but with that, they said, you're smart, you do math and science, you're gonna be an engineer, or you're gonna be a doctor. And that's what I thought I was going to do. I was gonna be an engineer, or I was gonna be a doctor. And I would go to all these programs um, in college and middle school, high school, college that were you know for students who were on one of those two paths. And that's what I thought I would be doing um, for my foreseeable life. That's what I actually started out doing. I attended the University of Michigan um, in the college of engineering. Um, I had the pleasure, um, now it's the pleasure at the time, it wasn't, I had the pleasure of working my way through school full-time. Um, and that just gave me a different perspective than other students um, that I was going to school with. Um, my, my thoughts on like what it took to make it and my thoughts on you know, what I got to see of the working world at a very early age shaped a lot of just my path because yeah. I was like, okay, I don't wanna do this. <laughs> Um, I also I also was very fortunate, you know, through all my work experiences, really early on, I got an opportunity to work overseas um, with General Motors um, at Shanghai GM um, and their intern co-op program um, and, and, and was going to go into, a, you know, a more permanent role there. And at the time, you know, I love the work there. I love the people there. I love the innovation. I love that I was a part of that mix. Um, and I love, you know, working for a company as big as, as, as GM and, you know, getting a chance to be exposed to what they were doing in global markets. But I also knew that most people work their whole lives to get a chance to have an overseas position. And like here I was having this position like very early on. And I was like, okay, <laughs> there's gotta be something, <laughs> there's gotta be something a little bit different than, um, there's gotta be something a little bit different than this, you know? And I, I didn't want to, I knew at that time too, that I didn't wanna be in a cubicle. Um, Cause that's what engineering is a lot of it's, it's, you know, at the time, um, industrial operations, electrical, all those spaces and places, um, those roles were in, traditional corporate cubicles and I hated it and I, I just knew that I was like I could not I was like I cannot start here and then do this for the next 20 years and, <laughs> and so I think for me it was um it was that and then the second part was I like to talk and my bosses and my my old colleagues would always tell me that in the engineering space that was a rarity uh, and so more often than not even as a young person um they would put me in charge of you know presentations and you know bigger meetings and things like that because I liked to talk well, I like that part more than I like the other side. And so when those opportunities came up, um, they they would constantly have me at the forefront and that just kind of shaped what I, me understanding what made me tick and what made me, I like the big picture, I like the vision, I like the strategy aspect of it more so than I liked the mechanics and the, you know, the electrical codes and things like that. And so I kept getting more and more projects in that space and then eventually, um, one of my projects um, had left, you know, by that time, I was in a whole different company, but one of my projects was in corporate engineering. And I was tasked with um, looking at companies who wanted to partner with the big three. Um, they wanted to partner with GM, Ford and Chrysler and their startups. 
And so here I am in my suit, you know, and you know, with all this corporate cubicles, you know, and they're coming in here. They were in jeans. They were, they were, they, their, their eyes were alive. They, they were passionate about what they were trying to sell. They were in the midst of this, and this was their opportunity. I was their opportunity to get this big, you know, deal or contract with, you know, one of these bigger um, Fortune 10 companies. And to me, I just was looking across the table at them like they look like they're having fun, you know, like they look like this is like the, this is their moment. And I was like, I want that. Um, and at one of those, as, as is normal with most people who are in the corporate world, we had many ups and downs, layoffs, you know, shifts, departments, all that kind of stuff. And in one of those downs, I was like, well, why don't I just try this thing that I saw them doing? And so I kind of tiptoed initially, you know, half corporate roles, half, you know, otherwise. And then eventually I jumped fully into like the venture space. I did not know that venture could be a career. I did not know about venture capital as a career or is it a space? I learned a little bit about it in college because at that time, I'm gonna date myself. Facebook was coming out, they were recruiting in campus. There were like less than you know 100 employees and they were like, these newer entities were coming out and they were recruiting. But a lot of folks were seeing those as like high risk. Why would you do that? You need a job at GM. You know, like why would you take this risk with this small little company that no one's ever heard of? Now everyone's heard of it and everyone has wanted to work there. But I remember when they were recruiting on campus for those first initial roles. Um, but that process was definitely not what I planned um, to your original question. Um, I definitely thought I'd be designing cars or designing, you know, plants or, you know, supply chain strategy or something like that. I thought that was going to be my path, but I meandered in the middle and I've loved being on this side. Um, I've been in this space about 10, 15 years. It overlapped in the middle with some of my corporate work, um, but I love, I love what I do. Any professional experience that you had throughout college and after college before you transitioned into sort of the venture space and also becoming a founder um, and director um, at Digerati, how do you think that professional experience, um, you know, despite not being very fun, you couldn't sleep very well at night <laughs> compared to right now, how do you think it shaped your abilities to really become a founder and a better director? It, it shaped everything. Um, and I, I, I honestly, I think there's pluses and minuses on those who go straight into the startup world and never have had corporate experience because from the very beginning, like I was on a, I was on an executive level track. I um, mean, I was, you know, I was a global lead and things like that at, at different roles and at different times. Um, but I was on an executive level track and I learned how to work. Like I learned how to work. I learned how to execute. Um, I learned how to be accountable. I learned, um, uh, you know, all, all of those experiences prepared me. Um, all those experiences prepared me. Now it's different to walk around with the budget of a big multinational than walking around with the startup budget because your, your, your pressures are different. Um, because it's, there's a lot of pressure and political pressure on making that money win. Uh, like it was always about my ROI and how much money did I save? And you know, this contract, I saved X million here and X million there. Those were the metrics before um, on the startup side, similar, similar pressures because it's all live or die. Cause you know, you gotta have enough, you have, have to have enough revenue to keep it, keep a company going, to keep your employees, um, keep your employees um, employed <laughs> and um, be able to still grow. That's a, that's a part of the process, but it's the same, it's the same, it's the same path on the corporate side. It's just different, it's just different, um, different factors or different variables. So I always say when people talk, when I talk about it is that my corporate experience, especially at the levels that I was operating directly prepared me to you know, run my own companies and do the things that I'm doing. Also, you know, quiet as it's kept, and it's not really quiet because most people do it. Um, 
it was my it was my most of my connections. Um, it was the fact that, you know, from a very early stage, I was working with Google and I was working with Microsoft and I was working with all of these folks. And I had a really vast network um, from working with these companies and being partnered with them that um, that helped me launch a lot of things that I launched. Because the first things that I launched were social initiatives, mostly focused at young girls and women and getting them into tech. And so I knew who to call. I knew I could like Google was my very first um, sponsor and backer of the st- the programs that we were running. They gave us their offices. They you know sponsored us. They were you know all that kind of stuff out the gate. And that was based on relationships that I had had and had built during corporate. And I, I don't think I would have got a, a leg up that that high you know had I not you know spent all the years that I spent in corporate working you know and they saw they knew how I worked. They knew my reputation. All those kind of things. Those things aided in me um, you know. Oh, doors opening for me, um, doors opening for me on the startup side. And initially when we first like went to start developing ecosystems and I, you know, figured out that this world of venture capital existed and we did some of those early angel investments and some of those early spaces and places where we're trying to build this stuff. Um, out the gate, again, people were still like, why would you risk, you know, why would you spend all your money with all your time with all these broke kids when you could be, you know, on this side? Um, and it was, it was a struggle. It was a struggle to convince folks and that they were, you know, really just kind of really curious and frowning, you know, when I would tell them what I was doing. Um, but about the time um, when the bankruptcies happened, when GM and Chrysler went into bankruptcy and Ford, you know, didn't go into bankruptcy, but also, you know, was having some transitional times. That's when the doors opened up as well, because all those folks that I had worked with um, before it was like, hey, especially in the Detroit area, it was you know that you can graduate from high school, get a job at a plant, um, making 60, 70 K a year over time, retire, get a pension at 40, 45, and then start a whole new career. And a lot of people, many multi-generations had done that here in this area. So it's very difficult to tell a culture that's built off of that level of success and access to come take a risk and possibly go broke and possibly, you know, do all these things in the midst of that kind of, that kind of ecosystem. Um, but when 2008 hit um, and, you know, the, the bankruptcies happened, I think that shook the foundation of what people thought was unshakable, um, what they thought was too big to fail, which ultimately it was. They saved the, they saved the companies. The companies came out stronger than ever. Their innovation teams are what I work with now. You know, like I work with their innovation and their venture teams now, whereas before I was working more on their corporate kind of development pro- product side. But that 2008 kind of was a switch where it did change the game because now people were like, well, Maybe it's not so crazy that you know we, you know we look at some of these other options, or maybe okay, we'll give you we'll, we'll give you some more, we'll give you we'll sponsor this, we'll, we'll we'll give you some space, we'll do that. It all of that happened that that kind of um, that ramped up after about two thousand and eight. Um, so it's been a fun path, though, for sure. Nice, wow, yeah. I I remember. I'm happy you touched on uh, Google because I remember um, I believe it was my first demo day when I came back to Detroit. Um, I believe could have been around uh, 2018 or so. And I remember going into the Google headquarters, we actually had chicken shawarmas. It could have been this, maybe 2019, right? The dates are like all fuzzy. But I remember seeing you speak and um, I, yeah, I was like, who's this, this woman? Like, she's so powerful. She's speaking. Like, I was like, I was blown away and um, I know you speak to a gazillion people. So I I remember I was going up and I was was chatting with you for a bit and you were so kind and welcoming. And I feel like that's such a a rarity. But I'm happy you talked about being um, a huge connector because I wanted to know, you know, when you were building um, within this Detroit ecosystem, 
Like, what did it look like? Like, what what was missing? And and can you talk more about how you were actually filling those gaps? You know, to then look now and being a part of the Detroit demo days, right? Going from like the, I can't see any of this here within our ecosystem <laughs> to now like playing an integral part in one of our our largest uh, things here in the city. So. Yeah, I would say um, it's a stark difference between um, Detroit back in those early days and Detroit now. Um, Detroit was the first city that um, I did any ecosystem building work in. Um, and so I've gone on since into what we call third coast. Third coast is Michigan to Miami. Um, emerging markets where I've seen similar levels, levels if you will, um, and levers also actually too. Um, but I think the key was in those early days, I tried to cut and paste um, what I saw in Silicon Valley into Detroit and it didn't work. Um, and a lot of that was because we didn't, uh, although we had tech talent, um, we had the youth and the energy and we had tons of innovation and we had the you know people who would be kind of receptive to entrepreneurship. We did not have, um, we did not have funding um, and we didn't have the culture. We didn't have the culture of like risk that goes along with this type of innovations. Our culture was, you know, 40, you know, 100 year old companies, you know, 20 year old careers, um, tried and true metrics, you know, people who were starting businesses were mostly starting businesses to be suppliers and partners to the big three. Mm -hmm. That was the bread, that was the, the thought. If anyone was entrepreneurial, it was in that space. And so I think those two things were missing. And so we had to kind of figure out how to, how to include those things. We're gonna have a pitch competition. And there, you know, literally the question was why? <laughs> Um, this is in the early days. <laughs> Literally, the question was like, okay, but what does that do? Like, and, you know, and so it was. It was a lot of convincing, a lot of massaging to try to understand, like, how do we, how do we best nurture um, entrepreneurial talent in this region? And I think um, it caught. Like, we've always, you know, we were the first place where the U.S. Patent Office, um, you know, set up an, a satellite office because that many patents were being filed in this area, and I tell people all the time, like in the earliest days, like I was still working at GM in the Rinsen. Um, Woodward was empty. Uh, it was it was completely empty. It was it was no one was there during the day. Um, I remember like at certain points I had security would escort me to my car each night. Um, and we had like one or two restaurants on Woodward that you know that weren't in the Rinsen. Rinsen had its own food court, and there were some nicer ones at the top. But for the most part, if you left the building, there was like a Coney Island and a Chinese food place. And that was it. <laughs> um, but to see it now, a lot of those, a lot of those buildings launching and a lot of those, those initiatives that brought businesses and small businesses and bigger brands back to the city. A lot of that was a lot of trial and error and a lot of people who, who, who were, who were risk tolerant, who said, okay, Dan Gilbert obviously was a big one, you know, took a bet, you know, start bringing some of those initial monies and, and, and uh, movement and volume down there, but as well as, you know, security and, you know, those kind of things. But I always tell people very, very clearly that, I am standing on the work of giants who have been in the Detroit area and done this work for decades. Um, and so they've been small business owners in various places. Um, and for me, it was just amplifying a lot of work that they had already done, but then also trying my best to introduce what, what tech and innovation aspect to it um, or reintroduce because you know we were some of the original, we were some of the original home of innovation um, and always have been. And just Detroit had a, a period where um, it died, had died down. Um, but those folks were the folks who were, you know, long-term been the spirit of like entrepreneurship in the city. It was just harnessing it in a different way. And for us, it was like the adding the culture of risk. So we started with things like, you know, 
you know, weekend long hackathons and, you know, competitions and things like that. So they're kind of getting, they're getting excited. They're understanding where it's going to go, but then also really doubling down on, on doing things to make our founders attractive so that outside capital would come in and, and inside capital that was here in Michigan, but investing in other places would invest in startups and entrepreneurship. Now, since we're in the timeline of, you know, Detroit's evolution and we're moving towards talking about the present I'll sort of go into talking about um, you know present funding resources uh, and I, I really want to I guess I'll, I'll talk about my own story I mean I started this right out of undergrad um, and so you know for me I had a little bit of a network I'd built up for myself uh, just through um, running a social impact incubator in undergrad and things like that. But it's really difficult to start off in the space. Like you were talking about connections are everything. And for you, your corporate career was very useful in helping you do that. But I'm wondering, you know, if you don't have any of that, if you don't have connections from school or from work or, you know, anywhere else, what can especially women of color founders um who are vastly underfunded what can those founders in specific do to best prepare for their first round and set themselves up for success just in general networking and and putting yourself out there even if you don't feel that you're perfect even though nine times out of ten they have more um more traction than most people in the room because that's how most of the female founders are they just go for it um it's that jump that they that they don't do. They're still waiting to be perfect before they present. They're waiting to be perfect mm-hmm. before they come to the hackathon. They're waiting. And I just wish that more of them would jump. And um, so that's the thing I try really hard is to try to like open doors wherever I go, but also to try to encourage um, women and especially women in tech and women in entrepreneurship and venture capital to jump and put themselves out there um, to build that network because that's how you get it. You know, people remember that amazing woman that they met at the conference who had an idea and, you know, had battle tested it and this, that, and the other. And they remember that and they'll, they'll talk to you six months down the road when you call them again. Um, but you got to first do the intro and the connection. You know, you got to do that initial connection piece so that you'll, you know, you'll, you'll be remembered. Um, and I think that's the biggest piece is that I think as women, we try, we want everything lined up. And that's a generalization. Not all women are like that. Obviously, several, um, there's a ton of women in the venture and, and, and tech startup space. But in general, when they're starting out, that's, that's one of the things that I see. Um, but to build that network, that's what it is. It's really about going out to some of these spaces um, where people are doing hackathons, where people are doing um, startup weekends, or where people are doing you know office hours and participating, signing up, asking some initial questions. Um, I think that's the, the initial part. And what I also tell people too, is that there's a language to venture. Um, there is a language that is spoken that makes it easier to feel confident in a conversation. And you get that language from blogs and from reading books like Venture Deals and um, from reading books like um, Arlen Hamilton's It's About Damn Time. Um, and you get that language and, you, and once you learn that language, you're more confident to jump into a conversation. Now you feel like you know a little bit and like you, you won't be totally lost. And so if, if you don't feel confident enough yet to go into a space and place and just put yourself out there and your business idea out there, start with, you know, some of these play, some of these blogs and some of these books and things like that that make you more confident in the language of venture. And then you'll have a better experience when you're going into these live events. And that's how you get on. And that's how you start building your relationships and building yourself in the venture world. Oh, I think that was amazing advice. I, I mean, since Isha and I actually started this, 
um, the, the Founders Roundtable. We, we follow people on Twitter, reading books, podcasts, mm-hmm. like, and, and I really think that's made a huge difference in us kind of understanding the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, just the other day, we found the, um, the startup investor tool that we, we didn't yes. even know was something that existed, right? And this is mm-hmm. because we follow somebody influential on Twitter that has really been educating us. So yeah, I think, I, I guess you're just giving us more confidence that we're on the right track as far as where you know we need to go because i think as an early stage founder you think that you need a million dollars right when you start to even get in the game and all these things and it's like no it's really more so focusing about putting yourself out there and learning trying it again (laughs) and again and again (laughs) exactly and again and also this conversation today with you i think proves that that strategy works because you said yes to us and gave us a chance to have some of your time. So it it's like, yes, it's just confirmation that it really does work. And it gives people like us in this position um, even more confidence in, in what we can do. So I, I cannot stress that enough. That's why I always tell the story of the, the, just, the juxtaposition of those who go out and, and give a napkin with like some scribbles on it and those who wait until they're perfect. Because the napkin mm-hmm. guys... They didn't really have much, but they went out there and now they've 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 had a conversation with Mark Cuban. And right. now they've gotten some feedback from Mark Cuban. And sometimes he laughs and sometimes it's like, come on, kid. But at least they did it and now they know, you know? Right. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now so, they know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now they know. So I'm happy you actually that was something we were gonna talk to you too about, just like any type of tools or resources. But I think that just gave the audience um something right there, just to that advice to go out there look into the books, find influential people online and just educate yourself. So, no, I think- I would also add really quickly, um, when you are going to like, especially in these, a lot of the Zoom virtual world, but Mm -hmm. also it, it applies when you're in a live conference as well. When you know that this who the speaker is going to be, spend some time researching the speakers. Don't just go and sit in the audience. Like have a purpose that you're trying to get out of a particular session that you're going to. So if you're a tech founder and you're trying to hire a CTO, like figure out who in this who in this thing has either been a CTO, has a good CTO, has a good CTO story, whatever, and ask that question to them on the panel. Like that's your biggest that's your biggest issue right now. That's who that's what you should be talking to them about, and you and, and make a connection with them. And and again, it becomes ten times more value added when you come out of when you come out of the events having researched the people going into them, and then number two, having gotten tangible um, advice on something specific that you are you are facing as a founder. And I can't like I I do that. I, I always tell people I do that all the time. Like when I'm doing, when I'm, when I'm looking for, I'm, I'm looking for LPs or I'm looking for, you know, founders for a program or whatever it may be. I'm going to, okay, well, there's 400 founders in this room. I'm asking them ahead of time. Is it okay if I post this about my program? Is it okay? If, like there's a point and there's a, there's an outcome. And so it's not just time spent. It's time spent with an outcome and you're, you're, you're one step closer to your goal. Okay. So say, you know, a founder has reached out to an investor they're ready to raise funding and um i i kind of want to hop into talking about now the funder mindset so you know after you began to lead programs that were really supporting founders from you know around the world um you've probably seen a lot of and have gone to observe a lot of investor mindsets and i think we really wanted to know how you've seen those investor mindsets changing around funding diverse founders because obviously some investors take a conscious effort to 
look at their investment theses and sort of see how those need to change and what are the metrics they're really looking at um, and change their mindset. And um, yeah, so how have you seen those change, if at all? Um, and how can things like, you know, setting specific metrics and things like that help with that? I've definitely seen a shift. Um, I, and I, I, another story that I tell all the time is like when I first wanted to do this stuff, I wanted to be a VC. And when I saw this, this was years ago, this was over a decade ago, I wanted to be a VC. And the first people that I asked about it, they told me I couldn't. Um, they point blank told me that VCs don't look like me. And they were right. Um, VCs, it's a very small community. Um, it's a very um, typecast community, for lack of a better term. Um, and they told me, you know, out point blank, uh, you know, and, but I was like, wait a minute, I, I started out in commodities trading. I was a commodities trading analyst and I was an, um, on my way to being a commodities trader. I thought that was what I was gonna do for a hot second. Um, but I'm like, so I have experience in finance. Like, well, why, what do you mean I can't do this? They're like, it's an it's a club, you know, and, and you you have to, this, you know, this, that, and the other are the things that they look for to be in this club. Um, and so to say that, to say that it, the, that mindset has changed is an understatement um, right now because I, so many folks that I know personally are now fully blooded VCs with fully blood, blooded funds. Um, and so many folks that I know personally are now um, long-term investors, but now are looking in markets outside of Silicon Valley in New York. And they're also looking at markets of founders who don't meet that typecast. Because um, it used to be that they were looking for the the gold, the holy grail. They went to Stanford, they went to Yale, or they went to Harvard. Um, they had a dad who was in something, 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 and you know they were all engineers, and they were going to start this company. You know, yeah. like there was it was a typecast. They were all male. They were all young. They were all under twenty five. Blah 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 blah. And I think over time, um, that it, you know people saw that there was a gap and what, you know, where, who, who that was allowing to actually raise funds and capital. And they also saw that there was also a dearth in the types of ideas that were being um, created because they were catering to themselves rather than to the broader market, which the broader market is, you know, in some places um, like, like Detroit, 80% plus of, 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 of a different one, one underrepresented minority or another. So if you have a market like that, and but you're only investing in folks who um, who don't look who don't meet that model, then you're missing out. Mm -hmm. And I think that was part of the switch that made things uh, made people open up their minds on how they think about their investment theses, and, and more importantly, even if they have the same thesis, how they think where they think they're going to find talent to meet that thesis. Um, that was a bigger that was a big piece too of like it can be in Detroit, it can be in Miami, it can be in Ohio, it can be in Minnesota, and here's why. But on top of that, that th these founders aren't may not look like the way that you think they're going to look. And so once you get past that shock, you know, the sticker shock, if you will, then <laughs> I think the conversation has changed the past few years innumerably. And I know it's been, uh, especially in this last year where just people have been more thoughtful, they've been home, they're not just moving you know, as fast as they used to move before. Um, people are thinking more about their business, about their goals, about what they really want out of life. And I think that's just shook a lot of things up as well. And it's been a, it's been a great market, market for all founders right now, especially early stage, but it's especially been a, a, a good market for underrepresented founders because they're able to get in the mix and get, you know, be considered, whereas before they weren't even considered. And I think that's a big, I think that's a huge, huge part of like this, this, this current space of how people are thinking about investment and thinking about where talent is, because that's the, and that's the thing. There's two sides. There's, there's a thought of like philanthropy and business. And then there's a thought about like, you know, actual business growth. And so 
somewhere like you want the middle, you want the middle ground where people are being thoughtful about the kind of companies that they build and how they build their companies. But you also, the companies have to be successful. Right. Point blank period. They have to be successful. You have to be able to get a return on your investment or else it's not worth it. Else you should be in a different line of business and you should be pure philanthropy if you're not looking for a return. Um, and so I think that's the, th that I think people understanding that you can do both. You can mm -hmm. still make money while still being conscious of who you're choosing and how you're choosing. I think that has changed the game and changed how people think about the world and how people think about venture and funding and things like that. Um, and so it's just, it's been, it, it's just been an opening on both sides. Um, and I think people are deploying capital in a lot of different ways than they never did before. I think I can think of definitely a few funds and programs that are doing a really good job of that. But if you want to shout out any right now that have <laughs> sort of led the way. Obviously, like I, I spent a, a significant time this past few years um, with the Backstage Capital crew, their whole thesis. They were one of the bigger, one of the earlier firms, I should say, because um, they're a boutique um, level, but um, that, that really focused on um, fo underestimated founders, women, people of color, members of the LGBT community. Um, back, that's Backstage Capital's thesis is that there's talent here and find it. Um, but I've also worked with such amazing companies like um, Harlem Capital, which is called a, a similar, a similar, <laughs> a similar thesis. <laughs> that's okay. Um, but there's also like, um, she's, a, she's a backstage alum and she just started a community fund um, that is focused on community, community focus, where community is the superpower in a business. Um, so that's based on like, you know, exclusive communities and things like that, where you're, you're able to build around that. Um, but you have tons and tons of groups that are in, in that space that are, um, that are building and thinking with a with a broader mindset, and you you, you have yeah. groups like All Raise, which is focused on um, women in venture capital, um, has a ton of has a ton of women and, and women led venture funds. Um, you have Pivotal, um, you have um, you know just all these different all these different groups um, that are so focused on like changing the game on how capital is distributed. Here in Detroit, we had we've always had Bell, we've always had Bell. Um, we've always had Bell Capital. We've always had um, some of these other groups that have always, always invested in women, always invested in, and had a thought towards um, underrepresented groups. And then you have groups where that's not their thesis, but it ends up being their intent. So like, um, and that's Detroit um, and Detroit Venture Partners and things like that. Um, and then I'd be remiss if I didn't like talk about like Techstars. Techstars, that's why I've been a partner of Techstars for over 10 years, because They've always been focused on diversity and community, and um, of late, they're really exciting. Um, looking at, um, they've announced their big um, hundred million dollar fund with um, um, J.P. Morgan Chase, um, and then obviously we're in the midst of the the Equitech Accelerator, which is an investment directly. Um, one of the one of the theses is in um, one of the th the three parts of the thesis for Equitech is focused on underestimated founders. The other two are focused on founders from any background who believe that diversity is a force multiplier and that are building um, businesses with um, diversity and equity as part of their mission as the second part of the thesis or the third part of the thesis that they're building a product where um, the product breaks down barriers and increases access to the broader society. And so it's a three-part way to look at equity and inclusion, but um, just again, the a thought behind being intentional on how, um, how and where we think talent's gonna be found that talent that's gonna give us a return on investment. Right, right, absolutely. You're saying this is a great, great time um, and space right now for founders within the market. So I was mm -hmm. curious to know, you know, what do you think about with the JP Morgan chases and the corporations now really shifting into um, community initiatives more than ever and also mm -hmm. investing in women of color? You know, do you think mm -hmm. this is,
this is the shift. I know this is something we needed, but I wanted to definitely hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, I think it's, it's exciting for me because um, I think like I've been a part of dozens, if not over a hundred at this point, different investment review committees um, for different programs where they're making decisions on who's going to get a check. Um, and so often for not, I've seen them ask, you know, and, and I've pointed it out, you know, both in the meetings and after the meetings, just like you ask questions of the women founders that you didn't ask of the men. Mm-hmm. Um, you ask questions of the underrepresented founders that you, you, you assumed and you didn't even, that weren't part of your, your setup for, you know, the broader base. And I've seen that for years and it's been a frustration for me. And, and the thing that the, just re, re, also real talk, the key is, is that most folks didn't really realize that they were doing it. Um, I've been in so many spaces and places where, you know, the questions from the women founders were like, are you going to have children? And, you know, do you plan to get married? And, you know, what, what's your style? What's your this, what's your that? Just trying to suss out like, you know, things that they didn't really, they just assumed the men had those pieces you know, that, that they would be assertive and that their style was this and they're this, you know, and they didn't ask them about their family plans. They didn't ask them about, you know, those different things. But if you're using that to rank and, and figure out like who's going to be a good bet from an investment standpoint, those are things that we cannot do. So right now I'm beyond excited to see, um, not only see some of these companies who like put their money where their mouth is, like work with Microsoft and several initiatives, work with Google and countless initiatives, um, but also see them start to fulfill it. So not just like put it up and you will have a, have a PR story, but actually, um, but actually execute on it, you know, actually, you know, fund programs and actually, you know, um, have people, you know, be certified and have people, um, you know, get access to capital and and get training and get mentorship and, you know, be a part of um, like the the Google black founders fund or, um, like these these different channel partner things like one of the groups that i work with a lot is the 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 black channel partner alliance with um with microsoft which is focuses on focuses on founders who um are building it services building businesses and and making sure that they're getting not only um access but they're being fully integrated into the ecosystem of those who become official channel partners and business partners with microsoft those are huge initiatives huge moments of of growth and uptick um, and a lot of those, like um, with in, in that same space, like women in cloud, they focus on um, women in tech who are starting these businesses um, and, and are looking for leg up and customers and all those kind of things. And they're putting, you know, their their collective big corporate stick has, you know, strength, and they're they're putting it, you know, they're putting it to work. And so if I'm I'm living in a moment that I didn't know would come when I started this journey, and so it's it's really really great to see. It's really great to be in the midst of it and to be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's also a fearless fund that um, mm-hmm. there's, I believe, three women, one from Detroit, actually starting yes. it. It's a great initiative. Um, Collect and Cultivate is a really great newsletter as well. And that's something mm-hmm. that we will also do with this, uh, with the videos and the links is to provide the community here that we're trying to build with that type of information. So. Mm-hmm. Information is information is power, <laughs> and the more folks know how to find the information and then how to find mentors to help them, that they'll be in a much better position. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I do want to go back a little bit to the founder perspective now again, um, and talk about building a team and really talking about and focusing in on this idea of diversity debt because it's a huge issue. Um, with, you know, like teams that are largely homogeneous early on having a more difficult time than recruiting diverse founders um, later on. And Mm -hmm. especially like 
with with my generation and just younger generations in general like we are now less likely to if we're joining a company we want a more inclusive work environment whether that's you know for women for minority founders etc um and you know if you want to attract top tier candidates you really want to make sure you have that diverse team because otherwise Mm -hmm. how are you supposed to get that top talent that you know you know larger tech companies especially are looking for um when i'm thinking of my own situation um so how would you recommend founders when they're starting out sometimes it's really easy to get caught up in thinking about other things um and you know there's a lot going on especially in your first year of building something Mm -hmm. you're not necessarily thinking about your company culture all the time but it does start at day one um you know you building an inclusive company culture so how do you sort of adopt that mindset of inclusivity and make sure that you're including it in your mission and you're including it in your sort of mindset when you're bringing people on your team? Because I see, you know, not all founders doing that. It's something that we talk about a lot because if you look at, you know, the way that, you know, Silicon Valley was built and like the Boston, New York area, like ecosystems were built, they were built first on the venture side and then now they're rapidly trying to kind of add a diversity lens and, and and restructure, you know, businesses, ecosystem funding, all that kind of stuff, because now they realize that it's become this kind of exclusive column and exclusive pillars and that, that are difficult for folks to crack. Um, and so when you, the, I, I often tell people that the key and the easiest way to start is to number one, be intentional. Um, and then number two, to keep trying. Um, that's the easiest, those are the easiest two things to have those as the mantra, like as part of your setup somewhere in there, like, we're not going to have, we're not going to develop and find this perfect, you know, this perfect diversity plot that works for all the days for all the years. But what we are going to do is we're going to commit to being eternally striving for um, looking for diverse um, perspectives and and, and continually improving. If you have that as part of your DNA, you'll be fine. Um, Because, but if you think that you're going to, you're going to put in all this effort and you're going to come up with this one, you know, this one solution and the one solution is going to then, you know, persist through time and through all the levels of your company, you know, the founding team, the growth team, the expansion team, it's not. Um, it really is an iterative process that, that changes every time new people are in the room. The other thing I always tell people is that it, I think an easy way to kind of focus on from a strategy perspective, sorry about that. Um, I think the easiest way to start from a strategy perspective is, is to then I think, look at who your customer target is. And so, if you have a specific product for a specific type of customer, make sure that your product is reflective and your, your, your organization is reflective of the way that you're targeting. So if you're looking at the broader United States ecosystem as your, your ultimate target, then you, your team should reflect that broader ecosystem, your product you know, should reflect that broader ecosystem and be thoughtful of those price points, things like that. If, you're, if you have a much smaller niche, then understand that your focus can be on the niche, but still that you're problem solving um, for, if you problem solve for yourself by yourself, you're probably not gonna solve the problem. So when you when you think a little bit, when, we, when you come with outside perspectives, you're probably gonna get there much faster. Uh, I often, t- I talk to people about that all the time because I think it's something that people, I mean, I'll say the same thing. I say the same thing for um, underrepresented folks. Underrepresented folks in a circle are not gonna solve problems for underrepresented folks. It has to be a diverse circle. It's just logic. Like you you have to be thoughtful of like how other people perceive things. Um, you have to be thoughtful about, you know, what the history is. You have to be thoughtful about what the future is. And that's not gonna happen in a circle if everybody looks the same as you. And that's on both sides of the fence. And so I think um, there is a debt there. And there's, um, I think that's something that like Detroit and um, like New Orleans and 
um, Miami and um, you know certain parts of Texas and some of these other emerging ecosystems had as part of their DNA because they had majority uh, majority minority populations. To them, they were starting from a place of diversity and then trying to build the infrastructure on top of it. And for them, it was a little bit easier to have those things integrated in front and center. Um, many people are still surprised to this day when you come to Detroit and understanding like how Detroit is made up and, and how it works and who's going to be a leader and who's going to be a president, you know, or who's going to be a this or that of different organizations because they're not used to seeing it. Mostly traders, when they go to other spaces, are also surprised for the same reason because they're used to seeing, you know, people of color in these different leadership roles. But if you go to another city, that does not happen. And so it's a plus on both. It's a plus and minus on both sides of trying to understand, you know, you know what what things are effective and what things aren't. But I always come back to, if you are open to a culture that has some sort of feedback loop and you're constantly trying that's how you're gonna get there versus anything else. There's there's no one solution, there's no one software, there's no one expert, there's no one anything that's gonna work for all, all organizations at all times. It is truly going to be a, a, a um, custom, it is truly gonna be a custom space and place that you're gonna to have to constantly work at. But if you do it, you're gonna be that much more competitive. And if you do it, you are gonna attract, like you mentioned, Isha, like you, you are gonna attract, um, you are gonna be a competitive space or place to attract folks. Um, and I'll tell you very honestly, when I was in corporate and I was at the beginning stages of some of the, where people were starting to like use these things to weed out, you know, who they wanted to work for. I thought it was silly. I did. I was like, we all, you know, it's, you just suffer. Like you guys just need to suffer like the rest of us. I mean, very honest, <laughs> because that's what I was taught. I was taught to, like, I was taught, I was taught, especially by women who were above me. They were like, like, I was taught, like, you don't say anything. They can talk about, say all these inappropriate things. I can write a book one day about the inappropriate things that have been said at boardroom tables that I've said at, where I'm like, you know, if anybody else heard this, we could get sued, right? <laughs> like, like, I cannot tell you how many of these crazy conversations we've had. And when initially we started to hire some of the folks from the younger generations and they would be asking questions and things like that, I'd be like, what, what, what is going on? But it just became, it became more of the norm. And honestly, it changed the way that I thought about it. Um, I was, I was at the time fully focused on building things new that way. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking that there was any chance to change the way things worked um, in, you know, existing. And now both sides are, um, both sides are looking at it differently. And it's, a, it's just, again, like a whole new world, a place I didn't know that we'd be in, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And I appreciate you bringing up the fact that it's an iterative process because, you know, it's super, it, it's just so different when, you know, your your team is like two people and you guys already have that mindset of inclusivity. And so you're in charge of bringing on team members. But then as you grow and you have an HR team, those necessarily, you know, those people necessarily don't have the same um, mindset as you do. So just like making sure you're building a scalable culture of inclusivity is so important and yeah it really is a process that just continues to change and grow so yeah changing and growing i think are two important things to realize when you're in a uh, founding stage you know just as a founder and starting like wow this, don't be married to the idea that you have and i think for me the incubator programs through wayne state and like michigan women forward really helped me out with that because they essentially drill down and get you to think like, no, but what exactly is the root cause of the, the problem that you're trying to solve? Because I don't know about you guys, but I started out here like, oh yeah, this is what I'm gonna do. We're gonna get this done, boom. But it's like, wait, 
logistically, how can you get this done? Do you need some systems? Like, okay, well, funding, how much is that going to cost? So it got me really to drill down and figure out how I really can create impact. Um, one thing that within that space of social entrepreneurship and balancing the profit and purpose, you know, I'm curious, Monica, your, your thoughts based on your experience, what type of strategies or measurements did you feel has been successful to really measure social impact value? That's a good one as well. Um, I'd, I've, I've had several in different portfolios and just different programs that I've been a part of. I've had several companies that were double double bottom line companies, social and profit, and triple bottom line companies, um, environmental, social, and profit. Um, I know now they're like on, on everyone's using ESG and some of these other terminologies to do the same thing. But in those spaces and places, I think people have to be true to who and what they are. And I always tell people, number one, decide on what you are. And so if you are going to be a business, then you have to have a, a profit perspective in all of your decisions, um, whether that's um, how you raise, how you grow, how you hire, all those things, it has to be profit focused. If you are not going to, if, you, if that's not going to be a part of all of your decisions, then you need to be a, a, a nonprofit. You need to be in the philanthropic space. And that's okay, there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to decide what, what, you, what you're trying to do. And once you have that decision, everything else kind of lines up from there. Um, so once you have that understanding from, and I think now um, Techstars is, is a B Corp, um, several other groups that I work with are B Corps, um, where it is a, a, a profit focused business that's not a nonprofit, but that has that, that, ab that ability and that eye and that lens towards doing, doing good while they're making money. Uh, but again, it's while they're making money. And so there's nothing wrong with being on one side or the other, but you need to know which side you're on because that's where people falter is that they don't understand. Like I get so many people who pitch me such amazing ideas and I'm like, that's great, but that doesn't scale. And if it doesn't scale, it's not investable. And so yeah. that doesn't mean that it's a bad idea. That means that I'm not the person that's going to be able to help you, at least not in this role. You know, I have a lot of roles, but at least not in this role <laughs> that, that we're talking about right now. Like I'm not the one who's going to be able to help you because, um, your goal right now is like you want to do xyz but you don't know how it's going to be paid for or you want to do xyz and you know you can't you won't have sustainable staffing or you want to do xyz and, and all these different things which are all perfectly fine there's nothing wrong with it it doesn't make you any less than but you just need to know who you are and what you are and you stay true to that and that's how the metrics the metrics make line themselves up after that oh i love that i got it so if it doesn't scale it's not investable I think, yeah, I think, I think that's a really great, great nugget. And um, I was just Googling, I believe Black Girls Code does a really great job of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm just double checking there, but that is a really great example of that, of knowing who you are and sticking with it, mm -hmm. which has been, been really huge. And I think for me, everything has been, as far as working with corporations has really been just through a network and through Wayne State and trying out these different programs that have really helped me because what I found is, yeah, you either have to be on one side of the road. And many That's people, true. yes, and <laughs> social entrepreneurship, um, many folks, it's been around, I would say seriously, for about the last, uh, for a very long time, but mm -hmm. a name started being, you know, attached to it, I wouldn't say last 10, 12 years or so. Mm -hmm. And because to this day, I'll get people like, what is social entrepreneurship? What are you mm -hmm. doing? And so that's why I've learned to focus on the business side of it and say, well, we have a nonprofit arm mm -hmm. where we help folks out because you're it, clear. <laughs> you know, you'll be in a nonprofit box and it's like, okay, well, good luck trying to pitch 
that mm -hmm. because yeah so and 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 i think that i think there are number one there are um funds that focus on social entrepreneurship ventures mm -hmm. um number two um, there are funds that even though they own, they're looking for businesses, they're looking for businesses that have some eye towards improving the world. That's one of their check marks on whether you'll be a good investment for them. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are funds that are, and there are funds that are fully focused on, you know, they don't know how to rank activities because activities take time. They take manpower, manpower has cost, um, uh, all those kind of things. They don't know how to rank your efficiency as an organization if you have parts of your business, your main business, that um, don't don't feed into the profit. And yeah. so you need to like, I, I think I tell people that all the time too, is like, don't do the shotgun approach of like any person with investor in their title is a good person to speak to. Mm -hmm. Find investors who know how to invest in what you do. <laughs> like, like you have to, else you're, 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 you guys are just wasting each other's time yeah. because they're looking for folks who are like, who are looking to profit. So they would be willing to chop off all the arms that don't, don't lead to profit. And if you're not on that same space, then you're, you're with the wrong type of investor. You're with the wrong type of person. And the other thing I often tell people too, especially in the venture world, is venture capital is not for everyone. Um, it is it is not the it is not the only way to raise a business. Even if it is a for profit scale up, you know, scaling intended business, some of those businesses never take on venture. Venture is a very honest, even though it's really sexy and everybody talks about it and everybody it's in <laughs> mixing all that kind of stuff. It's all great, but I, I think le literally less than five percent of um, total companies in the country take venture, and then. Well, of that 5%, that's where the sad, you know, not the sad or the, the dirt is, is because of that 5%, you're having less than one or 2%. Um, and to, for, for those math folks in, in the room, that does not mean one or two, one, one or one or two percent of the five percent. That means you take the whole one hundred, <laughs> the whole one hundred of all those people, and one less than one or two percent of those folks are folks in, that are underrepresented that are getting part of, part of those venture dollars. It is a very small subset, and that is a very true statement from the very first days when I started this. So again, venture is not the only way to scale your company, but this, the the lessons still apply. Even if you're not taking venture as a way to scale your company, you still need to know who and what you are. You yeah. still need to know if you are a business, a for-profit business, or if you, um, uh, if you, if you have a bottom line that that precedes the profit side. They can be even, but either it's included or it's not, and that's and that's what you need to decide and understand. And once you do that, you can align all your business activities, all your metrics, all your hires, all your OKR, all your goals, all your setups. You can measure all of that by knowing your purpose and your objective. Um, and then it makes it easier to know who to go into business with, who to partner with, who to, who, to, who to do a collab with, all those things, because all those things line back up to the original goal of understanding what your mission is. Oh, absolutely. I wanna take that point about mission and just go into talking about um, Equitex. So your work with that, I mean, first of all, how did you and this opportunity meet? And for you personally, why is building this new kind of startup ecosystem that isn't just another DEI obligation so important? Mm -hmm. Well, it's exactly that word. It's because the obligation aspect. Um, working in the space that I've worked for many years, that's the first thing people think. Like They think of diversity initiatives as something that you do for marketing or something that you do as an obligation. And so I want to find the people who understand and think about it as an opportunity. And that's what Aquatech is. Equitech is looking, it's a, it's built from, um, it's, a, it's a vision and idea built from the Upsurge Baltimore team. Um, they they want to use Baltimore as a model for the nation um, to understand how to build tech infrastructures and tech-based cities that are based on this Equitech 
thought of like these folks want to build businesses with diversity and equity at their at their center because they believe that diversity and equity are going to grow the ability for these companies to grow exactly what we've been talking about they're going to be able to hire better they're going to you know they're going to have access to different types of capital they're going to have better ideas they're going to have better outcomes the teams are going to be it's going to change the way that their businesses grow and that's why it was such an exciting opportunity to me because there's the Equitech vision and then there's the thought of like how does that go off into verticals and how does that change the dna of how companies are are built and i've been like i've mentioned most people know I've, I've had a partnership in one shape, way, shape, or form or another um, in the tech star space for well over a decade. Um, and in, in that space, I've always, one of the reasons why I've always, I've, I've had a lot of partnerships over the years, some of them that didn't continue. Um, some of them didn't continue just because of, you know, various business reasons, but sometimes it was because when they came into town, they were super excited to just give the check and be like, yes, we helped Detroit, you know, and now we'll never see you again because we gave you the check and now we're, we're gone. And so there were some folks that were like that. And those folks were, it was difficult to kind of, again, rebuild from scratch. Now that you're gone and you gave the check, now I have to rebuild this whole thing from scratch again for the next year. That is not, that is not efficient. That is not a, that's not how we're going to grow and scale. That's burning us out. That's burning my teams out. That's burning everybody out. But Techstars, um, working with them for years, I've always worked with them. They're not perfect either. And everyone will tell you, um, I, I think anyone who says their, their organization is perfect is, is, is not really <laughs> in, a, in, a, um, in, a, in a right mindset. They're not perfect either, but they're one of their mind, their core mantras of their, of the fund, um, the fund and the accelerator group as a whole is give first. How do we give of ourselves first? What founders need, what a city needs, what an ecosystem needs first before we think of like the other pieces. And that's been part of their, again, it's a mission-based, it's a mission-based um, setup. And that's been part of the setup since I first partnered with them, you know, back, way back in 2011, I think it was. Um, so that's why um, it was, it was a combination of things. Um, obviously we've had a Techstars in Detroit um, and would love to have one in the future. And I've, I've helped Techstars get launched in multiple other cities and, and do, um, you know, different community and ecosystem and um, accelerator efforts and all, and all these other spaces and places, um, which I loved and which was great. However, um, this was a unique opportunity. Um, this is the first time they've had a full-fledged accelerator that had equity, um, equity as, part of the, as part of the DNA, as part of the core thesis. They have, they've had a social entrepreneurship space, which does get to some of that, but this is one of the first times where they where that was the thesis. And so the opportunity of that was just an honor to get a chance to lead something like this for the first time for a group that I've worked with and, and, and you know, admired for many, many years. Um, man, I, I keep, I like keep catching myself because I'm enjoying this so much and wanting to be a listener that I'm like, okay, I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I wanted to talk to you about alignment and, and purpose so you shift a lot between different roles right and i and i think what you do is a testament to our culture that we live in right now um puts pressure on us to constantly be this or that versus mm -hmm. this and that right mm -hmm. so, so i think you do a great job of that and i was curious to know but how do you make sure you're in alignment with your purpose and not veer from that that's a really good question. Um, I would say I'm a real, I don't have like a real, like great verbal statement. I really, I'm a gut person. I kind of follow my heart and um, I go where, <laughs> I go where my heart says, this is a great opportunity. Help this person do this thing. It's exciting. Your, your eyes are open. You're in the mist. And yeah. I haven't been wrong yet. So that's probably not what everyone should do, but that's what works for me. Um, and so- 
it, it works. <laughs> like I, I follow things that like I'm excited by. Um, I, I align with people. That's honestly why I end up, and I'll be very honest, overcommitted um, in a lot of ways and spaces. Because oh, that's real. That's real though. <laughs> we, I hear you. <laughs> I end up overcommitted because it's I'm 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 responding to what my gut tells me, and my gut tells me this person is a good person, and this they're, what they're called, what they're doing is a good cause. So do I have my uh, my family and my my team and my my assistants and stuff? They get on me all the time. I just look at my calendar. I'd be like, sure, right? <laughs> <laughs> no clue how I'm gonna get from that part of the city to the other part of the city. Like, doesn't really matter. This is awesome. Let's do it. Um, and 90% of the time it works. I will say um, my sister is a long-term business partner of mine. She's founded Digerati Girls with me and several other businesses. Um, but she's also uh, someone that um, I have really good rapport with back and forth. And she will always tell me that time doesn't work the way you think time works. And mm. this is a very true statement, but for some reason, time works the way I want it to work when I'm working on things that are that um, align with who I think, where I think I'm supposed to be. Um, it, it, it works every time. I, for some reason, I can get from New York to <laughs> Detroit and be back on two, two events in one day, even though oh, it shouldn't work, it works. <laughs> um, so I, I just, I kind of go with my gut. Yeah. Uh, my gut tells me if something is right. Um, when I look back at my calendar, there's things that I, I've been doing for years that I, I quote unquote hang on to because I feel that they're still, they're still, they're still in the right space for me to be involved. Um, after a while, if it's, if it's something that I don't think that I'm, I'm having, I'm not helping. If I'm not helping anymore, then that's, those are spaces and places that I need to detach from. Or, or yeah. what I'm learning now at this stage, just being very honest, is that I've worked with so many people over so many years and had so many teams. I'm being very um, intentional about um, building people to take over for me um, in spaces and places that I started or spaces or places that I launched, things that I launched and things like that. So that, yeah. Although I still think it's a good cause, I can't give enough time to it. I'm hurting it more than helping it because I can't give real time to it. But here's this person that I know is passionate about this same space and who could be a good resource. I'm becoming much more intentional about doing that rather than still trying to support, you know, all the, the different initiatives and, and spaces and places that I think align with my purpose. Oh, that's so good about being intentional. I think that's huge now. And I think over a huge. Year, yeah, it's, especially with COVID, I think now more than ever. Um, it has really helped everybody understand how to be more intentional and how to and 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 take off things off your plate that they just that don't need to be there anymore. Or they're just there. <laughs> yeah, they're just there, and it, it doesn't serve any type of happiness. And I think you have to be happy, and, and no matter what. So yeah. you do, yeah, yeah. And I guess as we wrap up, um, so in our last uh, like what we used to do. Um, over on Clubhouse was like our sessions were called Failing Forward. Um, and so we wanted to know what is your, and I'm sure you have many of these stories. I feel like I already have many of these stories early on in my <laughs> journey, but what would you say is your failing forward story or an example of one on your journey? <sighs> That's, there's a lot of those. <laughs> yeah. None of them are pretty, but I think the, <laughs> the goal is like so many times where it's usually me thinking that time works different than time works um and and being being in the midst of things that i know are good initiatives where me having to back out me having to shift or change was amazing um you know was was amazing it was not what i when i planned um but to me and especially in some of those some of the bigger things i've had um i've been, I've been slated to be on stage in a couple of places where 
um, I got sick. I got really, really sick. Um, one time because I had too many flights in a 24 hour period and my body was like, nope, not, not gonna happen. And you. My body, my body was like, and I'm like, oh my God, these people have already paid me. <laughs> like, like, what am I going to do? Um, I had four flights. Um, one was a one was a red eye, and then I I, I touched down in one city, um, jumped on another flight, was just like an hour away, touched on another city, and then I was going to the third one, and it was just like, it was like no, and um, but it worked out amazingly, because um, I I didn't know what to do, and I I told them. Um, what, how would you like me to handle this? And, um, you know, it's like, cause I was basically like, I, I can't go forward, but here, all these people are waiting. I've already been paid. I've got all this thing um, considered. They actually changed it to, changed it to a different day, completely different format, made it a smaller um, group, um, which everyone was super excited for. They invited a select amount of people to have a smaller group on the same topic. Um, and then they, opened the space for somebody else who is a really good friend of mine. And then they were able to do this really huge launch of their, their company. And like, it just really worked out in so many amazing ways. But at the yeah. time I was like sobbing. I'm like, Oh God, like I've just ruined, you know, I've ruined my reputation. I've ruined this person's event. Um, but it, it was, it, it, for me, it's usually events like that. I'm moving so fast that, and usually everything works out, but every once in a while, everything doesn't work out. And in those moments I have to figure out like, um, I have to figure out like, you know, how it's gonna work. The idea wasn't mine that fixed it, but the actual fix turned out way better than anything I probably could have came up with um, on both ends. Um, but that that's happened like multiple times in life, like where I've had to bow out or like an opportunity seems so great, but I had to say no, um, not usually for time. Sometimes it was, you know, it's because of resources or sometimes it's just because it doesn't align or whatever, but more often than not, those moments end up being huge. Number one, because it's authentic. Because um, I have, I'm having an authentic connection with someone who is the lead, or I'm telling them like, I am not this plastic person. <laughs> like, you know, I actually, <laughs> I actually breathe and all those other things. Like, I have, I have all these things going on that um, I, I need to be cognizant of. But that makes real relationships because they know that when I'm, I'm in the midst, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not lying or I'm not like, you know putting on some facade I'm like being as real with you as I can and those are my better relationships are the ones where we've been public and, and um, we've been intentional with each other and authentic with each other and said like this isn't working um, and so now because we know we both know that this isn't working we've acknowledged it here's this amazing solution that we can come from it um, but yeah it's, it's just for me it's because I think time works different than time works as my sister says um, and and usually they usually those those instances either turn out really fabulously or really badly to those of you who stopped by to hear us out, thank you so much. We hope you'll subscribe, share with your friends, and join us again for episode two. The links in the episode description will lead you to our Instagram page, YouTube channel, and helpful resources that will hopefully make some of the obstacles on your journeys easier to overcome. We'll see you next time.